This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Tuesday, 15th of November. With me today, I have Barry Norris. Barry runs the flagship Argonaut Absolute Return Hedge Fund. In October, the fund returned 5%, making positive returns in both the long and short books. Over the last five years, the fund has delivered a 54.5% positive return with a market correlation of zero. Barry is an insightful market commentator and now has his very own podcast, The Gnomes of Zurich. Barry, welcome. Thank you, Nick. After Cambridge and some time spent at Bailey Gifford, what made you start your own hedge fund? Well, um, in between uh, four years at Bailey Gifford and starting my own uh, fund at Argonaut, I um, got my first opportunity to run a fund at a place called uh, Neptune, where I ran a European fund for three and a half years. And by luck or judgment, it was the best performing European fund um, three years in a row. I think it was second out of 101 year and first out of 102 years. Uh, that really gave me uh, or built up my, my, my brand credibility, if you like. And, you know, I'd seen how um, other people had set up uh, their own companies. And at that point, I got some help um, from a company that was then called Britannic and a guy called Jonathan Pollan to help me set up Argonaut. And um, and it went from there, really. And so we started in, in, in 2005. Uh, with a with a, a long only European fund, we supplemented that with a the first ever non UK equity income fund, and then by two thousand and nine, we had sort of, or at least I'd come to the conclusion that Europe wasn't the way forward, and we'd be better with a strategy that was not only long short but but had the ability to move outside of Europe. And uh, so, is the flagship fund a, a global long short fund? Yes, that's correct. Yes. And then, you know, I love your website. Your website has great content for, for investors and not just, you know, those in the fund. And you have these great, I think you call them documentaries. Yes. Which are a you know, wonderful insight into both your thoughts, but also the idea of you know, putting putting what you're thinking into into visualization, into visuals. Um, they're great on the Argonaut Capital website. Your latest is, what have fossil fuels ever done for us? What's the premise behind that? Well, I think um, uh, if you ask most people today, and certainly the 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 younger generation who have have almost been brainwashed into believing that the fossil fuels only have bad side effects in terms of CO two emissions, and the industrial revolution was this huge mistake, um, I think we've just got to put put it in context of what the industrial revolution and fossil fuels have done for us before we make a judgment about getting rid of them. 
And um, if you think that basically from Roman times to 1600 in the UK, the average person was no better off. Uh, and that's because society was, was generally lacking cheap and reliable energy. And it was called the Dark Ages mm -hmm. for a reason. There wasn't a lot of cheap and reliable energy. And as a result, it was dark. And that was a pretty miserable existence. And then in, in 1600, um, the UK started burning coal, ironically, because of deforestation. And so coal, if you like, saved the, saved the, the English forests. And then we learned to harness that coal and the power density of coal into mechanical energy, which resulted fo following the invention of the steam engine, obviously in, in travel being by, by steam, but both by uh, sail and by train. And that eventually caused globalization that allowed Britain to, to leverage its economic power into global political power. And that was generally, I think, a good thing. And um, at the same time, um, you know, human and animal power, which was most of energy consumed in 1600, in just 150 years became a small amount of energy consumed because we learned to harness this mechanical power. So if you think today, the average person consumes the equivalent of um, you know, the, the energy consumed by 200 people working for them night and day without complaint. Mm -hmm. And without that cheap and reliable energy, we wouldn't have the same living standards as we have today. Living standards are 30 times higher today than they were pre-industrial revolution. And energy costs are 90% cheaper. And that is probably the, the sole driving force, or indeed is the sole driving force, behind the fact that our um, standards of living have gone from GDP per capita of about £1,000 to £30,000. And so therefore, if we're going to have a debate about the future of fossil fuels, we surely need to start that debate by working out what fossil fuels have done for our economy, for our society. Um, and I think even Elon Musk said earlier this year that, let's face it, without fossil fuels, civilization crumbles. So <clears throat> that means that they're here to stay for a while. And um, but I, I sort of feel there is this sort of ESG unwind that is sort of happening over the last six to, to 12 months, really. And I guess that's a function of higher energy prices anyway. Um, but do you see fossil fuels playing a, a, a great part as we go forward? Look, I think ESG is a is a is a hold different topic that we could probably do another <laughs> podcast on suffice to say i have my own version of esg um which is slightly different to to what what we're what we're told it should be um but i think look um fossil fuels today are still over 80 percent of all of our energy use um and there's been $4 trillion of capital invested in wind and solar power over the last 10 years. And fossil fuels have gone from 83 to 80, 84 to 83% of our total energy use, right? So if we stop investing in fossil fuels, the price of that energy is obviously going to go up. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if what we're trying to replace fossil fuels with doesn't work or isn't technically feasible or is... Um, or is very expensive, 
uh, then this whole energy transition is actually a massive generational folly. And I think people also make the mistake of thinking that, uh, that electricity is 100% of our energy use when it's only 20% yep. of our energy use. So they don't understand the difference between power from the grid and energy use we derive from, from other things. So if you think the whole energy transition needs basically renewable energies to go from a third to 100% of all of our electricity will be generated, which frankly is impossible. Uh, but then it also requires electricity to go from 20% to almost 100% of our total energy use, unless you can sort of use these other technologies like hydrogen to replace electricity, which again, I'm very skeptical about. So where we are, I think, is, is the energy transition is something which politicians, opinion, in mainstream opinion, still thinks is both technically possible and isn't going to bankrupt our economies and lead to uh, a retracing to medieval standards of living, which will undoubtedly actually cause society to fall apart and those countries that still use fossil fuels to massively increase their geopolitical power. There was a reason why the homicide rate was high in the Middle Ages. Uh, there was a lot of conflict because people were poor and there was a lot of fighting. And I think, um, you know, this may sound a bit dramatic, the, the, port, the picture I'm painting, but actually if you go back to not using fossil fuels and you don't have anything to replace them with, civilization will fall apart. And it's very clear. Do, do, does natural gas and nuclear become part of this transition? Well, I think in the UK, we've you don't hear this very often from anybody, we've already halved our CO2 emissions from basically switching the power grid from coal to nat natural gas. Yeah. And natural gas also works because it complements um, wind and solar. So the problem of wind and solar or one of the problems of wind and solar is obviously its intermittency. And taken to the nth degree without the ability to store that power, which we don't have and may never have um, because it's mm -hmm. it's too expensive yep. and you can't ex store it for, for longer than a few hours. You know, factories, hospitals, um, schools would only open when the wind blowed or the sun shone. Uh, and, and where I think uh, gas complements that and uh, is that you can switch gas power on and off in a way that you can't do with nuclear because nuclear yep. has to be on all of the time. Yep. So that's why any power grid actually, I mean, I was always taught, I think, even when I was sort of in GCSE geography, that we needed to, to have all different sources of power generation in order not to put our eggs in mm -hmm. one basket. And the problem at the moment is that, that politicians are putting all of their eggs in one basket by saying that we can power the grid with wind and solar, which we can't, uh, and not realizing that this intermittency problem creates absolutely huge problems. So, for example, at the moment, um, there have been days recently which have been very favorable to wind power and to solar power. And you've probably seen these stats that... Yep oh, amazing day because, you know, renewables are more than 50% of our energy production in the UK for the first time ever. And then, you know, a week later, you'd get an, you know, you get a, 
high pressure over the UK and the wind wouldn't blow and all of a sudden um, that wind um, contribution would fall off to near zero. And the problem is um, that, that essentially um, you cannot run a grid like that. So, mm -hmm. so the analogy I always use is if, if I'm a factory owner, I basically need people to turn up between nine and five every day for my factory to work. And that's the same with electricity. Whereas what we have in this country and many other countries is an is a energy system which actually encourages people that aren't willing to turn up between nine mm -hmm. and five. And not only that, but actually um, historically pay more for that in a guaranteed contract. Um, so you basically said to wind and solar power, you just turn up whenever you like and whenever you want to work, we'll pay you. And then you said to the reliable workers that will turn up when you want, yeah. um, actually, um, you can turn up between nine and five, but we might not pay you because if the unreliable workers turn up, they get priority. And that's the way that our power generation works today in the UK. And you can, and obviously, the consequence of that is you encourage reliable workers because you're essentially letting them work when they want and, and giving them guaranteed pay. And you're discouraging reliable workers because you're saying when the unreliable workers turn up, you've got to sling your hook. And of course, that's really unproductive. And that's the reason why wind and solar is actually doesn't contribute anything economically because you can build out this wind and solar power grid, but it has to be backed up by the reliable workers at all times. That's how you can spend four trillion on building wind and solar, but for fossil fuels to go down only 1% in our total energy use, because actually wind and solar is just t a total political indulgence and a massive misallocation of economic capital. So is energy storage then the holy grail to flatten that? Energy storage is what wind and solar um, enthusiasts use as a rationale for continuing to overbuild wind and solar on the basis that one day it will come. One day we'll have a battery that can that doesn't cost millions of pounds that can store more than enough energy for an hour for and, a small town and can be used at night as well. Yes. Which obviously, you know, currently... Uh, uh, you look, there's a number of problems with that. Firstly, the biggest battery in the world at the moment can store 150 megawatts for, for a couple of hours. So that's, you know, that's a small town for a couple of hours. And in order for that to be at, at a cost of millions of pounds. So, I mean, w w we did some research, which is on our website, um, what would be the cost of a renewable grid if, if it was technically feasible? What would be the cost? And of course, not only do you have to build out all of the wind and solar, um, probably massively overbuild it from, from here, but then you have to pay for all the battery storage on top of that, um, which yeah, all and that number comes to more than 100% of GDP. And it's not just a one-off cost, because guess what? Wind turbines... You know, only last between mm -hmm. ten and twenty years. Batteries don't last, um, you know, typically more than um, ten years, and it all has to, you know. So if you're if you've got if you're basically saying we've got to replace our predominantly fossil fuel um, 
powered economy with a renewable grid at a cost of 100%, more than 100% of GDP every 10 years. And actually, it does, it's actually, you end up with a worse product, not a better product. Okay, the, 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 you could argue, okay, it's a better product because it doesn't produce CO2 at the source of burning, making the fuel. I would argue it produces a lot of CO2 manufacturing the, the solar powers, manufacturing the wind turbines, um, uh, and then you have to get rid of all those things after 10 years as well, but that's another debate. Um, so it's entirely unproductive, and the problem is that if Europe continues to go down this path, not only will it really mess up our economies and result in falling standards of living, but we'll also cede political power to China and Russia and Saudi Arabia that won't go down that route. And then I suppose with this policy folly over the last 10 years, investment within oil and gas globally has also declined. So therefore, there must be a bit of catch-up happening now or the need to catch up? Well, you would have thought so, wouldn't you? Logically, what would be our response to an energy crisis? Well, perhaps we should build, drill for oil or shale gas. Or, or if you're Germany, you can convert your green, your green wind to, to coal again, I guess. Yes, indeed. So, yeah, in Germany, they've, they've knocked down a, a few wind turbines and started to, to dig for coal in the, in the same place. But, you know, it, so, so if you think about the policy responses to an energy crisis... The, the typical response was, well, we just need to re-accelerate our efforts in solar and wind. So I just have no respect for that response because it doesn't, it, it doesn't even assume that, that there is any problem of intermittency. I mean, it's so stupid, it's unbelievably stupid that politicians can even say that without also offering a, a, a solution to intermittency, a realistic solution that doesn't involve some massive breakthrough in battery technology which you know puts Moore's law to complete shame okay so it's got to be realistic and and that is their response which is no response at all so what you're getting in Europe is is you know, anything that that is in heavy industry smelting aluminium fertilizer steel all of that is just being shut down and it's being, you know, moved to Saudi Arabia or to North America where they've got cheap, cheap gas. Which I guess is the backbone to the German industry. Yes. So, so if you're Germany and you're a manufacturing economy which needs energy to, to, to manufacture, uh, and, and probably it's not a good idea for those factories to just open when the wind blows, um, you're very reliant on cheap energy for your economy to work. And Germany essentially imported cheap energy from, from Russia, then exported that energy in a manufactured form to, to China. Both of those trades are looking pretty tricky at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just see, you know, Euro the, the European economy will just go through deindustrialization. And I think even those economies which have less industry, like the UK, which are more service sector orientated, ultimately are still challenged because, as we've seen, if you go in the UK from being a net exporter of energy, which we were in the 80s when we had North Sea yep. oil um, 
working properly to a net importer, so now we import half of our energy from abroad, that affects your terms of trade. Mm -hmm. That's why the pound is weak. That's why the government had to subsidise electricity bills. Um, uh, and, and that's why today um, the government is raising taxes because of our terms of trade. So this idea that um, you know it doesn't matter whether we produce energy ourselves because we would we, the the companies selling that energy would sell it at the global price it's absolute rubbish i mean you think that you think the people in norway or saudi arabia say oh i don't think there's any point in us drilling for oil this year because if we drilled for oil we our companies would sell it to the rest of the world at, at, the, at the global price um, why would we benefit from that well you benefit quite a lot because you'll be exporting energy you'll have an industry there which is adding economic value and your currency is going to be strong and that means that you don't have to raise taxes on the rest of the population um, and you have a sustainable economy so those economies that will do well um, until governments give up on net zero and getting rid of fossil fuels will be the ones that keep investing in energy that have cheap energy and those that don't will will frankly see um significant losses in standard of living and those you know we're at the moment and we'll maybe come on to this this kind of economic crisis we're in at the moment is very different than those that we've experienced in the recent past because we are our standards of living are going down not because economic growth is contracting in a nominal sense but just because we've got very high structural inflation yep. and if inflation is 10 percent, your standard of living is going down 10 percent yep. a year until inflation normalizes, which it can't normalize because the price of energy continues to go up because we're not investing in it. Do you think, Barry, that there's ever a chance that a barrel of oil might not be priced in dollars going forward? Um, well, I think that's dependent on um, just the extent to, of, of deglobalization, which is, of course, another reason why we've got this stru yep. structural inflation the degree to which um china russia and and, and friends and which, Saudi, a, which actually yeah. include most of africa yeah. some of south america most of asia in fact more places that more places yeah. than not that they go off in their own direction um and i think the key here is actually what happened to russia during the russian sanctions where really the first time I've seen this, where you know Russia's got has bought, for example, you know European government bonds, they've bought U.S. government bonds, and those bonds obviously were 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 their asset and somebody else's liability, and effectively as a result of the sanctions, European governments and the U.S. government said, um, actually those bonds you've got we're not going to recognise and. Basically, we're going to confiscate those those assets, and therefore, you know, there's there's it's often said that there's inside money and outside mm -hmm. money in the financial system. I.e., outside money is basically what fugitives and drug dealers yep. need, which is cash. I think Jay Newman, ex, um, no, sorry, where was he? He was at uh, Elliot. He called it under money, didn't he? Right. I think, yeah. Yeah, probably the same thing. Yeah, but 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 basically, outside money is 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 
cash gold that you could spend that was supposedly one of the advantages of of crypto though crypto i think has a few other problems <laughs> certainly this week um, and, and inside money is basically anything that is effectively an iou so your deposits in the bank it's a it's a an asset which is somebody else's liability and effectively russia got excluded from western inside money and it's probably not going to go back so now if you're if you're not one of the western governments you're probably going to say, well, I don't really want to buy U.S. treasuries mm-hmm. um, because actually my ownership rights are questionable. Perhaps I want to own gold instead. And in fact, yeah. actually over the last three, three months, gold buying by central banks has been actually very, very high. And I suspect it's as a result of the, the consequences of the, the Russian sanctions. So going back to will oil be priced in, 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 in dollars? Um, well, I think Russian oil is already not mm-hmm. priced in dollars, right? So it 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 it's certainly it's certainly possible, and um, you know who knows? Um, watch this space, I guess. And then, yeah, the the view of it on the dollar. I mean, obviously, we have this very strong dollar. Mm. Yeah, is it with the role of the dollar to ease these global pressures? What's what's your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think it's easy to understand why the dollar has been strong, yep. not only because of the rate of interest offered and the lower inflation relative to the Western world, but also because the US is a net exporter of, of energy. Yep. And obviously the dollar also does well in typically periods of, of risk off. Um, and I suspect, therefore, that... Um, that we might see a, a, a decade of both strong commodity prices and a strong dollar, which is somewhat unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because typically yeah. it's gone. You know, the dollar's been inversely correlated. And then why, why strong commodity prices? Um, well, um, fossil fuels—if you don't invest in them, the price is going to go up. Yeah, and um, you know, obviously, you have to remind politicians that they've been telling oil companies not to invest. There's been no refinery built in, you know, the U.S. or Europe in, I don't know, 20 years. Um, you know, Australia imports 80% of all its refined product. Um, and, and, you know, lots of refineries shut down during COVID because there wasn't any demand. And they're not coming back. And they're certainly not going to come back when they introduce mm-hmm. these windfall taxes as yeah. well. Yeah. So we have a situation at the moment where where you know Europe or, or or not only are we not investing in in producing crude oil but we're not investing in refining crude oil either and also um refineries used to be built close to where demand was and now they're not which obviously means that ships that take refined product from the Middle East or China where it's currently being refined um, to Europe or North America or Australia where they have an absence of refining capacity are going to be in significant demand. So, you know, one of the things that we're very bullish on at the moment is is just uh, uh, shipping, uh, which I think when you say that to people, they automatically think container shipping, which mm-hmm. we say, no, we're actually short container shipping. Uh, not dry bulk either. Um, LNG is probably peaked. Yeah. But, but um, product tankers... I tankers that carry gasoline, diesel, 
and also crude tankers. Because what we're going to see at the moment is Europe officially stops importing Russian crude in December and will stop importing Russian refined product in February. And what is happening is Russia is selling that crude oil to China or India that are, around, that, that are then yeah. refining it and shipping it back to Europe. Yeah. And Western governments know about this. And in fact, only yesterday, Janet Yellen said that that was okay. Yeah. Um, that, that actually if crude oil was taken from Russia to, to, a, to a third country refined and sold back into Europe, that was okay. And it's also, of course, you can't really track it because there's been lots of... Um, there's been lots of speculation that why are Saudi Arabia importing crude oil from Russia? And obviously they can mix it with a bit of their own oil yeah. and sell yeah. it back somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no blockchain for oil, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, um, and, and with other commodities as well, obviously energy is the bedrock of you know, the physical economy. So if you have higher energy prices, you generally have higher commodity mm -hmm. prices. Mm -hmm. So, so for example, with all foodstuffs, yep. you know, the biggest single cost input into food is fertilizer. Fertilizer is made from energy. Um, nitrogen fertilizer, the cost of nitrogen fertilizer is, is over 80% energy, typically nat natural gas in the West. Um, so, so, and, and then of course, um, most people will also be aware of the fact that we're going down this energy transition route, which involves this completely useless um, renewable um, um, economy being built. And it's just replicating what the fossil fuel economy does, but not, but not, but not replacing it. Mm -hmm. So you're basically paying double for everything you used to only pay once for. Um, and, and frankly, yeah, there's not enough nickel and lithium for batteries for electric cars. Yeah. And then if you have to start using that nickel and lithium for batteries to back up wind and solar power, you get ridiculous numbers of nickel and lithium really? demand and copper demand as well for the grid builder that, frankly, it's just never going to happen. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, going back to um, just looking at the environmental cost of electric cars, um, effectively, because you've got this big hulking lithium-ion um, battery in electric cars, you've already your 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 CO two footprint is already twice what a, uh, an internal combustion engine car on day one when you take delivery because the battery is so horrible in terms of all the stuff it it uses yeah. that you actually have to drive it for one hundred and twenty five thousand miles just to break even. Yeah. Um, and of course, the electric car only, you know, what's it going to last? 10 years? Who knows? Um, and then with, with wind turbines as well, you know, the, the, if you compare, the other thing we haven't talked about is just energy density. Yeah. So how much energy does it cost to produce um, the hardware, if you like, in the first place to generate the energy? And that's where solar and wind are incredibly poor because you actually have to use a lot of energy to make the wind turbine to the, or the solar mm -hmm. panel mm -hmm. just to get a little bit of energy out of it 20 to 40% of the time, right? So, so actually, in terms of energy in, energy out, they're incredibly poor. And of course, you need massive amounts of fossil fuels and of other metals to build wind turbines and solar, solar cells. 
I mean, 80, 85% of all solar cells are, are manufactured in China from, from power derived from burning coal and probably from slave labor mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and therefore, um, if you compare renewables to nuclear, which has got the highest energy density of anything, um, I, you know, you take a little bit of uranium and with that tiny bit of uranium, you can get generate masses of energy which can power when you want it to power consistently towns factories civilization and you wonder why hmm, um why why you know if uh, nuclear is is carbon is carbon mm -hmm. i mean there's a small carbon yep. footprint and everything but nuclear is basically carbon free if you're if 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 i actually had the views of the apocalyptic environmentalists i'd be massively enthusiastic about nuclear because mm -hmm. it's the only scalable way that you can solve the problem and although nuclear you know although we're still largely using 70s and 60s technology yeah. which is a problem which is why nuclear power stations are all breaking down at the moment because they're 50 years old although the mini reactors seem very very exciting I potentially think. yeah potentially but but essentially when people sort right but nuclear is really expensive compared to wind and solar. Well, yeah, but if you, you, if you actually are serious about carbon emissions, and I think personally a lot of, a lot of that stuff is exaggerated and there's, there's not a scientific debate which is unhelpful, then, then you would at least go forward in terms of civilization and the cost of the cost of nuclear matters less because it's actually adding to your economy in mm -hmm. the same way. Well, if, if it doesn't really matter what wind and solar costs because it's useless, whereas energy is nuclear is expensive, we know, but at least it does a, does a job. Um, and, I, and I think the problem is if you go back to the, the fossil fuel video, um, there was a reason why we gave up on wind and solar back in the day in the medieval day because it was useless yeah and because coal was we could harness coal yeah. effectively and essentially what we'd be asked we're being asked to do is to go back to those energy sources that we used to use in medieval times you know, where we had we, we had windmills we had mm -hmm. we had um water wheels we had biomass back in the day we gave up on them because fossil fuels are better and the only thing better than fossil fuels is nuclear no, I agree. I agree. Completely agree. So if we have a period of increased energy prices, increased commodity prices, does that then mean that inflation is inherently stuck in our system for, for the next decade? I think a lot of it comes down to what's your definition of inflation. So I, I, I keep hearing our friend Hugh Henry say, <laughs> quote, quote Milton Freeman, that inflation is everywhere yeah, a monetary exactly, phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, so uh, by that definition of inflation, uh, the inflation you get from not investing in fossil fuels isn't inflation, it's just terms of trade. Yeah. yeah. Now, I think that that is too narrow a definition of inflation because, um, frankly, if you stop investing in something that we need you're going to have inflation in that. And that isn't necessarily connected to the amount of money circulating in the economy, although demand for it might be connected to the money circulating in the economy. 
And I think we've also had periods of time where we've had we've had a commodity boom, but inflation hasn't been as out of control as it is today. Yes. Yeah, so part I I'm, sorry that would have been two thousand and sort of ten eleven post the GFC I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Or or. You know, the, the Chinese demand cycle Correct. from 2000 yeah. to 2008. Yeah. Um, which was, which was you know, partly the Chinese economy growing incredibly fast, consuming massive amounts of commodities. But it was also because nobody had invested in commodities yeah. then for 10 years either. Um, but I think, um, so I think not all of the sources of inflation are commodities, so I think now you're, for example, if you look at the U.S. economy today, there's rampant inflation, or I would say sticky inflation in the service sector. And that's basically caused by, um, you know, everybody wanting to go into a white collar job in the tech sector. And mm -hmm. that's where the capital has been for for, for for people to employ more people and nobody wanting to do the blue collar jobs and and, and perhaps um, a lot of people giving up on those blue collar jobs during covid and and not the same as we say um, labor market in terms of immigration either so you have at the moment in the us for example an incredibly tight labor market even though we read the headlines you know, that some big tech company is laying off and you know twenty percent of their workforce. Well, today we saw that Amazon's um, cutting ten thousand people, yet they employ one point six million. So it's yes. always the headlines are irrelevant, really, aren't they? Exactly. And the tech sector is a is still a very small employer, uh, uh, and so you can you can basically what we're, what we're seeing, I think, is is all of the redundancies are basically in either tech or or finance or and and you know yeah. obviously crypto as well but in general the labor market is still incredibly tight because um and that you know for for example if you think about the current generation growing up um uh, how many of them want to go and work for a fossil fuel company drilling oil uh, those jobs now are incredibly well paid yeah uh they all want, they don't want to do that they want to you know join a tech company or a food delivery app or a payment company all these things that you know we don't really need the the you know the carbon free hot dogs the solar powered tanks um flying taxis all of this in invention for its own sake which actually you know that's where the capital misallocation has has been and we haven't really focused on 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 the, the building blocks of civilization and i think that's is the one analogy I'd use is somebody going into my job in the financial industry. They want to be the fund manager straight away, yeah. and they haven't concentrated on being a financial analyst yet. Learning some rudimentary accounting, understanding some accounts, understanding how you know companies work, and there's a there's the the there's if you like, that's the building block of your knowledge to become a fund manager. Whereas at the moment in the economy where we're, we're we're producing university graduates, kids from school, the one to go make the leap, you know, they, they, we, we, there's not enough of them going into the, the industries that the, are the building blocks of our civilization. That makes a lot, of, a lot of sense. And if we do move and have a look a bit more of the sort of economic landscape, I think we've touched on it, 
or or where you see markets over the next six to, to 12 months? I mean, obviously, we had this inflation print last week mm. from from the US. Uh, the market got very excited that the Fed will pivot. But I mean, because we can all read the, the minutes and get the feeling yeah. that I think that's highly unlikely. But yet the market seems to be taken away with this. Yeah. And what's your, what's your thought? How's the landscape look for you over the next six to 12 months? Well, I, I must admit, if you'd have told me last Thursday that the, the CPI figure would be 7.7% rather than 7.9, i.e. 20 basis points light compared to the the, the the 10 basis points extra that we got the previous yeah. month, I would have thought maybe the markets would have been up about 2%. And instead, we and in a pretty broad-based rally. And instead, we had just you know the biggest trash rally since two years ago, where we had the the ninety-five percent efficacy vaccine data, yeah. which of which I don't think anybody now would say was necessarily an accurate headline. Um, in the in the you know what 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 determined efficacy was rather ill-defined, should we say? Um, and 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 if you like that led to a, I think just this knee jerk reaction back into risk assets, which I think unless you unless you really believe that inflation is under control and is gonna unless you really believe there's no structural problem at all, and you can get inflation under control without having unemployment, which has never mm, happened. Yep. Um, you're sort of back to the same bull market that existed over the previous decade. And I think, look, in financial markets, people in general learn one way of making money. And when that doesn't work, they're understandably lost. And then they desire return to that way of making money. And this inflation print encourages that narrative. Yes. And, and and therefore, and there's still a lot of people because they've done generally quite well over a longer period of time, but not that well over the last year, that will see that as a validation of, you know, the trade is back on. The last year has just been this horrible night, illogical nightmare. Um, and I, so, so it's understandable, I think, that the same camp that thought inflation was transitory, that then thought that, um, we'd seen peak inflation when the lumber price went down yeah. 12 months ago. Yeah. Just, you know, uh, just attach their hope to these one single data points. And I think it's wishful thinking. Um, and I also look at markets this year, I think we're only down 15%. Yeah. You tell me that the, 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 basically the discount rate's gone from zero forever to 5% for at least the foreseeable future. Yeah. Uh, I would have thought that that is actually quite a bit more off markets than 15%. Mm -hmm. And in my view, also, you have to have a proper recession to get inflation down on a cyclical basis, right? So it's not even about the structural things we've talked about in terms of decarbonisation, deglobalisation. On a cyclical basis, for inflation to go back under 2%, you need a hard landing. It's, uh, it's, it's we've never had inflation mm -hmm. above five percent where there's been a soft landing, yep. and for that you need um, corporate profits to fall. Mm -hmm. And if corporate profits fall, companies start sacking people, and that's only happened in the tech sector at the moment, and finance sector, and the finance sector, yep. and in Bitcoin. Yep. Um, and, and when you get that, then the labour market dynamic changes. But at the moment, 
nobody's going to go, um, you know, inflation's 10% this year. I want, um, I'll take 3% because that's what, that's yeah. that's where Fed fund futures say inflation's going to be in the average of the next five years. They're going to say, I want 10% because that's where inflation is. So therefore, you're already in this wage inflationary wage spiral where 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 inflationary dynamics are have set in in a structural way in the in the labor market and the service sector and i think if we look at inflation in, in general the core cpi let's say you've got a third in manufactured goods which are now falling a third in rents which are still paying catch up and a third in the service sector which is essentially labor so you know, I would think inflation would start coming down, but it's it's nobody believes that inflation or or I don't think that's the debate. Nobody thinks inflation is going to be ten percent next year and twelve percent the following year. Otherwise, we'd have fifteen yeah. percent yield on the ten yeah. year. We don't. We have three point eight percent, which is still a real loss compared to inflation today. So I think. Um, it, we've moved away from a peak inflation debate, which is frankly irrelevant, to uh, just a higher for longer debate. And if you buy long duration assets today, then you believe that we're going to go into a deflationary environment, not just inflation coming down slowly, and that money's going to become free again because you'll have quant easing again. Yeah. And I just think we're not going back there. So I think that the, the game has changed. And I think those investors that understand that the game has changed can have investment careers that last longer than one cycle. That's very true. So where would you say the Fed will, and I don't like the word pivot, but where do you think there'll be either a, a stabilization or easing of rates as we look into the next six to 12 months? So, so um, I think it's almost certain it would be 50 basis points in, in December because they've yep. kind of told you that. Um, and po possibly smaller increments after that. And, you know, that's you know, it's sensible in a way because they can't keep raising by 75 yep. basis yep. points. But, of course, when they do that, it actually eases financial market concerns that we're going to have a hard landing. And so one of the things that happened with the with the with the CPI print coming in slightly lighter was that the dollar weakened, mm -hmm. commodity prices went up, and that mm -hmm. was partly of course due to China reopening as well. And so actually the only reason why oil is below $100 at the moment is because people are worried about fed hiking. Yep. They're not worried about fed hiking, oil goes goes up from here possibly quite a long way. Right. So this is why you can't have it both ways if you're a deflationist. If you've got easier financial conditions, then everything in the economy where there's a supply shortage will start going back up again because people will worry less about demand. So this is why, you know, we're, we have these mini cycles, I think, within a, a longer uh, period of, of, of structural inflation. And if you ask me, when will the structural inflation end? I'd say when governments give up on net zero and start investing in fossil fuels again. And I think that's quite a long way away. I mean, interesting, though, we could well see first quarter, first half next year, a perfect storm of of that belief that rates may stabilise or, or come down, energy prices rally, 
and China reopens, which will push energy prices even even higher. I would have thought. Yes. Which then and we might get some cold weather as well. Well, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) certainly in the UK. Hopefully, at some point. And I think one one of the issues with the energy crisis, of course, is that people have become very short term in their thinking that we filled up the energy storage, which is on average about 25% of energy use. And we've had some warm weather, which has meant that we haven't drawn down on that. And then you get into next spring and you say, well, last year we actually could fill up the storage tanks in the with Russian gas. What are we going to do this yeah. year? And that just, I think, hits hard because because a lot of the sovereign credit, of course, and the and the, you know, the the re- one of the reasons why the pound has recovered, is not just because we've got the gnome of Zurich, Zer- Jeremy Hunt as yep. the, the 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 chancellor, but because actually we've had warm weather and therefore the subsidy, yeah. the gap in the public finances from subsidising the electricity bills isn't as big as what it might have been. I mean, it's a staggering amount of money, isn't it? Really, it for is. subsidising energy prices and i think what was what was very odd about that whole 45 days of of the the trust trust and uh, quasi show was that they actually announced at the beginning of the 45 days the two-year subsidy for the electricity bill which is like two it's difficult to know what the subsidy yeah. would come to because yeah. it was obviously dependent on what the average electricity prices and gas prices would be but that could have been quite easily ten percent of GDP, mm-hmm. and you know one I think one of the issues was well, you know we kind of blew twenty percent of GDP on COVID lockdowns and yeah. and you know fraudulent COVID loans and stimulus in general when money was apparently no object. We then blew another ten percent of GDP subsidising electricity bills for two years without really any energy policy in becoming energy self-sufficient and then kind of cut the top rate of tax from 45 yeah. to 40%, which probably, even if you don't believe there's any Laffer curve, yeah, would cost like 0.2% of GDP. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, that was, that was the irresponsible bit. So I kind of didn't really... You know, and nobody been adding up all the other bits that we've been doing over the last three years, and it was just cutting the top rate of tax was irresponsible when um, you could just uh, splurge thirty percent of GDP on uh, things that you might have might, could have avoided if you if you really wanted to. No, I mean it's very true. I mean, I guess I guess you you, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys, and I think unfortunately that's where the government sits in in many of the population's view at the moment. Yes, but I think you. Um, I mean, the problem I think is um, in places like China, where they obviously don't have democracies, is at the moment you know they tell us that they're better governed because they don't have democracy, mm-hmm. and I think you know, the quality of political leader um, throughout the Western world is is pretty much at an all time low. Yeah, and just obviously as a, as a as a scholar of history, I'm sure you can back that up many times over. <laughs> Barry, this has been really great. As you know, um, as my regular listeners know, I tend to close with three questions. So if I can take one at a time, mm. that'd be great. Um, Barry, your greatest inspiration or mentor? Well, I think uh, when I first started at Bailey Gifford, um, it, um, I was recruited by Douglas McDougall and Max Ward, who were you know, great sort of Scottish patricians of the, of the financial world up there 
Um, and then my first boss was James Anderson in his European yep. team. Um, and then when I got my first fund to manage at Neptune, I worked for Robin Geffen, yep. who also built a, a business from you know, 20 million to multi-billion. So I've been lucky enough to work with a number of very successful fund managers. But I also, but, but I, I, I kind of, and I also, you know, have lots of contacts in the industry as well. And I think it's very important to keep broadening your knowledge by, by having, you know, friends and, and peers in the industry that, that, that you, you know, able to have a dialogue with. But I also think that everybody I've worked for, I've pretty much worked out quite quickly what they're good at and what they're less good at. And so, you know, I think the, the, the skill is taking the, or trying to take the good bits and avoiding the bad bits yeah. and trying to work out, okay, you know, this is when that fund manager will outperform because those are the economic conditions or the macro conditions that will suit them. This is when somebody else will do well. And of course, that, that's in general the problem with picking fund managers is that they, they will all do well at different times. So it always makes sense not to think that somebody's invented a secret sauce, but to look at, okay, this fund manager will do well in these circumstances, this fund manager will do well in those circumstances. And I think when you're somebody like me, who kind of thinks, okay, if, I'm, if I want a, a career that has got, is a multi-decade career rather than one cycle, I've got to actually understand what's driving asset prices and how that evolves over time. And of course, the risk, if you accept that, is that timing those changes mm -hmm. is, is actually quite difficult. And I think, you know, for, 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 for I've been lucky enough, I think, to when I started my career, generally being pretty pro-commodity and, and anti-tech. And then in 2010, recognizing we were in a different environment for, for kind of nifty 50 type stocks. But it went on far longer than what I thought. Yeah. But now I think, you know, I can see that we're in a different dynamic and we're not, you know, we've got a good cycle of, I think, value and commodities doing well. So I think one of the aspects, to go back to your question of, of fund management, which is forgotten, is, you know, it's as much a test of character as it is a test of intellect. Yes. And you have to be quite hard-nosed running a fund because even in a good year, you're going to have a few tight spots where you think, um, you know, this is a pretty uncomfortable time because not everything goes your way in a linear sense running a fund or, or running a business. So I think, you know, who has been my inspiration in terms of developing that, that should we say, you know, hard-headed nature, being able to put things into perspective has probably been my mother, mm -hmm. who was an endless source of inspiration to me. Um, never complained, always hardworking. And then, um, and, th and then she got... Um, given a year to, to survive cancer, and she lasted 13. Wow. So whenever I look at things, you know, that are, you know, challenges in, in life, I always think, well, you know, let's put it into perspective and let's, you know, think about resilience. And, you know, when things don't go well, you, you, you don't lose confidence in yourself and you just keep going. And then a book that's inspired you? So, um, 
I think in particular, given the, the, the contrarian passion for fossil fuels, the thing that got me into that was reading um, Alex Epstein's book on uh, the moral case of fossil fuels, which mm -hmm. I read a few years ago. And I think that's a very good starting point for anybody that, that has an open mind about um, fossil fuels or wants to learn the other side of the of the um, of the debate understood and then what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting out on their career to follow in your footsteps to um, to to have an incredible degree of resilience yeah and determination and not think that it's all going to go your way in a linear progression and I guess as you as you alluded to earlier don't run before you can walk yes there is a there's a massive degree of of um, you know learning how to analyze a company and, and accounts before you and also just accumulating experience over different cycles and I think one you know the worst times in fund management are actually when you haven't got a clue what's why you're losing money yeah um, you know the, the the ones where you can understand why you're losing money they're easy they're quite easy to to rationalize and therefore those mistakes are easy to learn from because you understand why you got it wrong as a fund manager you could be working incredibly hard you can be massively intelligent know a lot about lots of different things but still be a complete idiot on any single day because you're losing people money and 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 so it's not, everybody has to, uh, I think that's probably why in fund management you often come across some of the best fund managers are actually sociopaths mm -hmm. because they don't have that, any any um, conscience, shall we say, or have less of a conscience about um, the fact that they're running money that is actually people's savings because actually they're therefore, it's easier for them to contextualize yeah any losses that they make and move on to something else. But at the same time, obviously, um, you know, experience of managing money, of seeing, of, of having made mistakes before and seeing different cycles actually allows you as a fund manager to put things into greater perspective. And Barry, if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? Um, so we have... Um, website argonaut capital yeah we have a youtube channel where you can find the 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 documentaries um and hopefully there'll be more in the future and uh we also have a a twitter handle as well which is we're, we're currently banned i'm told it's nothing to do with the content that we put on twitter but hopefully that be that will be back up and running soon and then, obviously, the names of Zurich uh, can get from your website, your podcast? Yes, absolutely. So the aim is to do that on a kind of monthly basis, exploring perhaps one new topic every month. That's a great listen. Barry, thank you very much for your time today. It's been delightful. Okay, thank you, Nick. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.